0: this is recording.
1: RTI International. International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode 7 of our drug season, Just Science talks with Dr. Nadia Schreiber-Campo, an associate professor at Florida International University, about her research on the effects of alcohol on witnesses and victims' memory for events and faces. Victims and witnesses are discredited for being intoxicated and may encounter obstacles as a result, but there is no science at this point that suggests that alcohol negatively affects a witness's memory for a face. Listen along as we examine research and perceptions surrounding the credibility of intoxicated victim and witness testimonies. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan.
0: And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I am John Morgan, your host with Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. We are going to uh, be talking today about a very particular aspect of drugs. We're in the middle of our drugs season. We've been visiting topics having to do with toxicology and also with the opioid epidemic. But today we're actually going to be flipping that on its head a little bit. We're going to be looking at how people vary in terms of their perceptions, their ability to provide good witness testimony, and whether that's affected by both drugs or trauma. Our guest is Nadja schreiber Campo with the Florida International University. She is an associate professor there and co-director of the legal psychology program. She earned her PhD at the University of Münster, Germany and a postdoc at the German Academic Exchange Service. And she continues her research from there at FRU involving investigative interviewing and witness memory, especially of vulnerable witnesses, such as children or the intoxicated, focusing on potentially detrimental and beneficial interviewing techniques and their underlying cognitive and social mechanisms to improve the quality and quantity of witness and victim recall. Welcome, Nadja.
2: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: Good to have you. This is an area that I think is extraordinarily important. There's been a fair amount of research about eyewitness identification, our forensic science Community listeners often will tell me, they'll say, hey, you know, we uh, have some times when there have been some improper convictions related to forensic science, but eyewitness testimony, in fact, is much, much more unreliable. Tops it all. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And as a result, you know, I think it's well worth our time to be looking at eyewitness testimony and how to improve it or how to understand the weight to put on it. So tell us in general, so how did you get into the research and eyewitness testimony?
2: It started with a talk by a legal psychologist in my undergraduate years at the University of Trier in Germany, where I did my undergraduate, and it isn't a big area. Legal psychology is kind of a, it's an important area, but it certainly is a relatively new area. So I didn't even know anything about legal psychology and witness memory as an undergraduate. I was stuck in statistics, (laughs) research methods, (laughs) and maybe social psych, uh, which I thought was really interesting. That was the first time I was exposed to that type of research, applied research, something that we could actually use to help the real world. That's how Mm -hmm. I was thinking back then. And after I earned my bachelor's, I continued my graduate studies at the University of Münster. There was one professor there who did something that was related to legal psych. It wasn't really at the heart of legal psych, but it was the closest I could get at that time to getting closer to legal psychology, which I had gotten a taste for during Mm -hmm. that talk. And through his connections, I was able to visit the United States for the first time in my life in 1995 when God was a child (laughs) and study for one year sponsored by a scholarship at the University of Texas at El Paso because one of the leading researchers in the field of eyewitness memory is still a professor there. He's now retired but he still is Mm -hmm. actively working but at the time he had an active lab and was a full professor and so he gave me a chance and said, sure, you're self-funded, come over here, kiddo. You can study with us. Mm -hmm. And that year changed my life. I learned everything I wanted to know and more about lineup identifications, fairness of lineups, lineup admonition, uh, facial recognition. And also I worked with another faculty member there on child witness interviewing Mm -hmm. research. He had gotten his hands on the original McMartin preschool daycare abuse case transcripts of the witness interviews and we analyzed those and I spent nights in the lab scoring Mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of pages and analyzing these interviews to find out, you know, what had gone wrong because it was apparent at that time that this wasn't going to be a slam dunk of a conviction. So I had to return back to Germany because I had to finish my master's and my PhD, but after that year, it it literally changed my life. A, I knew that that was the area I wanted to go into. I just thought it was fascinating and relevant and had all the bells and whistles of interesting research, uh, gathering from cognitive psychology, social psychology. Also, I'd gotten my first-hand impression of research, like what it really means when we say we do research. And I get this... A question a lot from my, my undergraduate students. They're like, well, we know you all do research, but what do you do? Like, what is it? They don't understand the day-to-day dynamics of a lab. Sure. So I got back to Germany. I continued to finish my research or work on research at UTEP. I still am very close with Roy Malpass is his name, and he has mentored me throughout my entire career.
0: There's a lot of social science, obviously, a lot of Mm -hmm. examination of people, sometimes at the societal level or in other other kinds of behavioral contexts. Eyewitness testimony, in some respects, and the research on it gets right to the heart of understanding the variability of people, right? I mean, because that's the problem, is that people are very hard to study. We're very variable. We have a lot of personality issues that come in, a lot of ways that we can be cognitively capable, but also impaired, we have a lot of unusual things that we do when we process information. And the eyewitness idea and how you research that gets at all the core of those issues. Yeah,
2: I think eyewitness memory showcases how psychology uh, or human memory in particular is a result of external and internal factors. So in a nutshell, to be more specific, you know, as far as eyewitness memory is concerned, is eyewitnesses can be extremely accurate Child witnesses, intoxicated witness, I'll talk about that. Normal, whatever that means, adult witnesses. Sure, yeah. right? But more than anything, the quality of the eyewitness evidence is a direct function of how it is gathered. Mm-hmm. So similar to, and sometimes I use that analogy, it's a little similar to forensic evidence in that you want only people who are trained collecting that evidence. Uh, you need to keep it away from contamination Right. And the sooner you collect it, the more accurate it's going to be. The same is true for eyewitness memory. Okay? So you want to gather the eyewitnesses' memory. We distinguish between memory for events and memory for faces because they uh, are linked to somewhat different memory systems sure. uh, and follow different uh, principles. So the memory for the event is basically everything from um, where were you what were you thinking at the time uh, you witnessed the armed robbery at the 7-Eleven, but to describe to me in as much detail as you can uh, the, the face of the person who shot the 7-Eleven clerk. So that would be a memory for the event. Uh, memory for face has anything to do with recognition memory of a picture that I present to you. Okay. Sure. So I can either present you with what we call a show-up, that would be a picture of one person or a live show up would be presenting a live person. You know, Mm -hmm. you described somebody, we found him a block away from here, he's in the back of the police car, which by the way, he shouldn't.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) You should not put the suspect in the back of the police car, he looks very guilty. So talk about contextual factors. Is is
0: Uh, the guy we have handcuffed over there? The guy handcuffed in the (laughs) back of the police car, is that the guy you thought? mm
2: -hmm. And it typically doesn't happen, you know, but there are cases where this has happened, has led to problems with mm-hmm. the idea. To a lineup, and a lineup as recommended by the NIJ should be a six-pack, so six people with five known innocent fillers and one suspect. Okay, So we distinguish between memory for faces and memory for events. That's basically sure. describe me. And uh, describe to me everything you remember.
0: It's mm-hmm. even different in terms of how you express it, right? Because I think I could do pretty well if you give me the six-pack lineup, right? In terms of saying, all right, that's you yeah, know that's Nadja right there. Mm-hmm. And but if you ask me to actually describe you, it'd be a very different thing. I think I'd do a terrible job with that.
2: Right, because the way we encode faces is different from the way we encode an event. Right. Mm-hmm. So some people suggest that faces are encoded more holistically. So you basically have kind of a representation of the entire face and how it relates, how the eyes relate to the mouth and it's encoded and stored somewhat differently. Right? I
0: think about this sometimes when I watch an old rerun. I don't know if you, you, you ever watched M.A.S.H., that's an American, old I've heard American. about it.
2: I've never watched so it. So they, yeah. they,
0: they had hundreds of episodes of this show that was on for years and years yeah. and years. And I tell you, if you show me the, any episode, I will recognize every scene. I've, I've seen them all. I remember every scene. But if you ask me actually to, like, recite it or anything, no way. But, I mean, I recognize it. Completely, yeah. you know, and there is something different in that recognition that mm-hmm. occurs, I'm sure, in the human brain. Getting down into the research is the compromise that somebody has. Let's take one type, okay, mm-hmm. Let's because you've looked at intoxication under the NIJ award, or what did you yeah, look at so, under the so NIJ So my award?
2: area, I basically, almost all of my research focuses on memory for events. Clearly, I'm familiar with the research on faces, and oftentimes it's somewhat linked in the real world, right? So if you have a really poor memory for what happened, you probably don't have a very good memory of the perpetrator unless you just looked <laughs> or just presented his face. But you're absolutely right. So we gather memory for an event, for a crime, via an investigative interview. And we gather a memory for a face, typically via a recognition test, which would be a lineup or a show-up. Sometimes we also, if we have no leads whatsoever, you might ask for a detailed description or you might get a sketch artist involved, right, where the witness is describing the face in a lot of detail. And then the sketch artist may be able to create kind of a visual of that description. Mm -hmm. Um, But the typical way we gather memory for events is by asking the witness what happened.
0: When you look at compromise, are you looking at it from the encoding or the reporting perspective? And does it matter? I mean, is it, yeah, tell us about how that works. There's two different ways to describe that. If you describe it
2: as a cognitive psychologist, you would say it matters, of course, what the encoding conditions were, which is basically the circumstances under which you witnessed a crime, you paid attention to the crime, you stored some of the information in your short-term memory, And you may have moved some of that information from your short-term memory to your long-term memory. So that's Mm -hmm. encoding. And that is not under the control of the criminal justice systems. By the time an investigator gets to the witness, that has already happened.
0: Yeah, I Mm -hmm. mean, it's interesting. So my understanding, and we've been doing under the FTCOE a project on human factors and forensic science, Mm And so I'm completely amateur. I know just enough to be dangerous in cognitive <laughs> psychology. One of the things I know is that people approximate all the time, especially in short-term memory and processing, right? Because the, the brain does a lot of shortcuts and does a lot of like interpolation and I'm just like, oh yeah, this is two out of the three is okay. And of course, that must also impact how then that short-term memory gets turned into long-term memory by the hippocampus or something. Mm -hmm. So how is it even possible for us to have accurate memories? I mean, is (laughs) it, whether we're drunk or not, right? right? Generally, I would
2: say memory gets a bad rap. I mean, we remember a lot of things really well. mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about our incredible ability to remember people that we know and how lost we would be if we couldn't recognize people that we know and distinguish them from people Mm -hmm. that we don't know, you know, it's pretty amazing what our memory can um, remember. And if you think about, you know, similar to forensic science, right, yes, it's true that in 60 to 70% of wrongful conviction cases, eyewitness memory errors were involved. But, of course, if you look at the number of correct convictions or accurate convictions, you probably have a similar number. I don't have the number, but I would go out on a limb and say witnesses also play a really important role, just like forensic science, in the conviction of guilty suspects so I talked about the encoding, but to get more to your point, um, we do have considerable control over the accuracy of witness memory by the way we try to retrieve or help the witness access that memory, Mm -hmm. right? So if there is a decent memory of the event, you know, there is now 40 years of research in legal psychology and investigative interviewing that has showcased precisely how we can increase quantity and quality of information elicited from witnesses and what things not to do. So I spoke briefly about, you know, the legendary daycare abuse cases of the 1990s, and as horrific as they were, we learned a lot about what not to do in those cases and what is problematic, regardless of actual guilt or innocence, but what things lead to problems in a courtroom. So what types of interviewing techniques raise eyebrows or draw criticism or should be replaced with less suggestive techniques, right? So witness memory is a function of how it's being elicited. And almost all of the research on eyewitness memory is on either stranger identifications or a completely new event in an environment where there's new people we've never seen before or interactions, a gun that we've never seen before, right? And so we say, when we talk about memory being difficult, we really only refer to the part of, you know, a brand new event with brand new people. So stranger IDs or completely novel, stressful, highly traumatic events. Sure. So
0: does it matter whether you're intoxicated with alcohol versus other drugs? I mean, a lot of drugs are meant to change perception, right? And that's what they're right. after. Right. Whereas alcohol, I mean, I'm not sure how much it changes perception in some respects. It changes perception, yeah. your short-term judgment ability, right? But not necessarily otherwise. Tell me, is that just like legend or is that real?
2: Let's talk about alcohol and what okay. memory <laughs> So we started this research thinking that this was a slam dunk given slim dunk as in alcohol's got to influence eyewitness memory. Like, mm-hmm. we just have to prove it. Nobody had really done it. There were two studies at the time we started this line of research. And those studies yielded, at best, weak results. And it was 2006, I think, when we started this research. And we were surprised that nobody had really looked at alcohol and memory. And so we went back, and there was a considerable body of work on alcohol's effect on basic cognitive functions, like attention, digit spans, the classic cognitive psychology tests that you present. So here are 20 words, drink three vodkas. How many Sorry. do you remember? <laughs> you know, I'm simplifying, compared to somebody who drinks three OJs. And surprise, person who's intoxicated was, actually if they, they usually drank um, alcohol before they remembered the word list, which is an important distinction. Sorry. So um, when you drink, matters. But the typical experiments are intoxicating your experimental group, presenting them with a word list, testing them afterwards, typically when they're still drunk, which is Mm -hmm. also an important distinction, compared to a control group that drinks something, because you have to hold it constant, right? So they have to consume Mm -hmm. some kind of beverage. Then you present them with the same word list, and then you ask them to remember... Those 20 sure. words, and most of the research, 80, 90% of the, this basic research suggested that, yes, alcohol impairs memory.
0: Of course, those are all tied up with cognition, aren't they?
2: Well, those are all tests that have nothing to do, really, with autobiographical memory, right? Mm-hmm. They, these are, this has nothing to do with a coherent event that you are actively involved in. Even if you're a witness, you're somewhat active bystander, looking, you're feeling, oftentimes, you're somewhat involved, right?
0: Taking another look at that, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about times when I've been intoxicated and been challenged to do stuff. have mm-hmm. done a little bit of work looking at interrogation techniques, so mm-hmm. you're looking at interviewing suspects of various types. Mm-hmm. And one of the tricks of the trade is to Im- increase their cognitive load. It's right. very hard to lie if you have to draw while you're being interviewed <laughs> yeah. and all that kind of nonsense. And to some extent, being drunk increases your cognitive load. It's theoretically possible. Again, this is hypothesis. and yeah. not based on any scientific research. I might be better because I'm having to focus more deliberately when I'm drunk at actual recall. I don't know. It isn't a slam dunk, I don't think.
2: It is. So we thought still it would be. Now, like hindsight, you know, now I'm already distinguishing, well, it wasn't autobiographical memory. So you can already figure out where our research went that I have to rationalize how this was so <laughs> different from autobiographical memory. Very quickly, just to answer your question, Dr. Evans, she's the PI on this grant. I'm a co-PI on this grant. We got an NSF grant to study exactly your question. And mm-hmm. the jury is still out, which is the effect of alcohol on the likelihood to waive Miranda rights, and uh, interrogations. So if it increases, for example, both truthful and false confessions, and what exactly the effects are of alcohol in the interrogation room. So the research that I'll be talking about is alcohol and witness and victim memory. Sure. But we are currently actually studying that exact question, what happens if a suspect is intoxicated. So maybe this is a panacea for... <laughs> Truthful confession. Yeah, right. No, we don't know. There is some research that suggests that if you're intoxicated, you are less able to consider the long term consequences of your behavior. It's coined alcohol myopia theory by Steele and Joseph. So, if that is true, that would predict that you're more likely to confess both falsely and rightly so, right? Because mm. you're not thinking about, I just want to get out of here. Okay, yes, yes, I did it. I'll sign it. Don't worry no. about it. You may not consider that you just falsely confess and that'll put you in prison. You're not going to get out of here, right? Mm-hmm. That is something that I could talk about in two years. Okay. <laughs> <In a podcast. laughs> we'll but, have that lined up. That's right. All that so, for. But to go back to the original question, so we thought... Of course, alcohol must influence memory. And what's interesting is that before we started our first study, there had been a published survey on psychology experts and what they feel comfortable testifying in a court of law to, what type of topics in legal psychology they think have a big enough body of work behind them that they would feel comfortable making a general statement about that in a court of law. And there were some questions about alcohol and witness memory. So this was a 2001 survey. It was published in 2001, 2002. And a significant number of psychology experts said that they feel that there is enough research to testify in a court of law that alcohol will affect witness memory.
0: Even though there were only two studies as of 2006. There were only two
2: studies. And if I'm being generous, probably, <laughs> if I'm being very picky, probably, you know, if it's published in 2001, you know, the survey was probably done Two years before then, and
0: that there was really only one study at that point. Which is an interesting study of the cognition of psychologists. That is right. Yeah. It,
2: you know, it kind of sheds a somewhat critical light yes. <laughs> on psychology experts, I will say that. Mm-hmm. What they had probably done, not to excuse that, but they probably thought that that body of work. from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, was enough to testify on this television. So we also, Dr. Evans and I, for her master's thesis, she looked at the effects of jurors' perceptions of intoxicated witnesses. And she found that jurors, now these are mock jurors, these are undergraduate students who are presented with case vignettes. You know, this was a lab experiment. This was not drawing from the Miami-Dade County Public jury pool there are some studies like that they are an immense amount of work but there's an argument to be made to draw from the actual jury pool we didn't these were jury eligible FIU students they were mm-hmm. presented with case vignettes and long story short they thought that intoxicated witnesses were more likely to be cognitively impaired it didn't directly affect verdict but it did affect the way they thought about cognitive impairment and then we started a series of studies on alcohol and witness memory, and then realized very quickly why nobody had done a study on it, because it is a monster.
0: The human subjects aspects of it alone, I mean, we've done a fair amount of research at RTI, not under the FTCOE, but separately, involving toxicology. And in fact, we have an ongoing one right now looking at the issue of, you know, there's a roadside test to look at whether you're drunk or not, right? And you put your finger on your nose and jump up and down, whatever. And there really isn't one for marijuana, okay? So there's a different type of impairment, right? Mm -hmm. So you'd want to have a different kind of test. So dosing people with marijuana is not something you do every day. And I'm sure that getting people drunk also is very difficult as well if you're going to be trying to determine how good a witness they might be.
2: I am happy actually retrospectively that I didn't know how much work it would be. I was very naive (laughs) if I had known. (laughs) If somebody had told me these are all the things you need to consider I would have said you know let's stay with online basic witness studies in the lab. Luckily, we've done some on the side just because it also takes years to yield a publication. These are five-year studies. Okay. So just to give people maybe an appreciation of, and also about, you know, an excitement over what lab research can be. Like people usually start yawning when I say lab research, but this was, this is not your yawning type study. Mm -hmm. Now, given that we wanted to hit all the buttons in the first study, make it very vivid and life and so on. So first of all, we needed to create a bar lab. We now have a bar lab. We have a room that has a bar mm-hmm. and that has paraphernalia like vodka bottles and a dartboard and music and cozy lighting. So we created a social drinking
0: environment. Oh, you must be the favorite professor at You FIU. would think. Yeah. You mm-hmm. would
2: think that students stand in line. They don't to participate. But just to convince your universities ethics board that you can conduct this study safely, that you can intoxicate students on campus Mm -hmm. safely. Sure. (laughs) Took us about a year. It just took us a year, and I think it was 120 pages of IRB, Institutional Review Board, submission with full board review with a lot of critical questions, rightly so. Thank you to FIU for trusting us with this somewhat risky study. So we are finally allowed to intoxicate students on campus, but the protocol, the medical screening form, the intoxication protocol that has to take into consideration participant gender, participant weight and then has to measure how much alcohol everybody gets depending on sure. their height.
0: Now, I assume you also did some monitoring, um, So and then breath the breath monitoring, or what right. did you do? Yeah. This is
2: where Ken Furton comes in, and his okay. lab, and Howard Holness, and the Forensic Science Department. That was my first encounter with the Forensic Science Department. You're very a, fortunate. I, FIU we were, has one of the yes, best
0: places in the world yes, for that we kind are. of... Yes, we are, mm-hmm.
2: absolutely, and that was my first research contact with the um, with the Forensic Science Department. I'm not exactly sure... Who suggested I contact them? I don't know if it was. I would like to take credit for it, but <laughs> but I can't remember. I'm a memory mm-hmm. researcher. Thank you, answers. whoever that was. <laughs> Thank you. So I contacted them, and I learned through them. Here, here's to multidisciplinary collaboration, um, and we're the only bar lab, to my knowledge, in the entire world that does this. That mm-hmm. there's actually a science to breath alcohol measurement,
1: mm-hmm. right? So yes, as a psychologist,
2: I had no idea. I'm like, we just need some kind of like the handheld breathalyzer. <laughs> They're like, no, 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 no. You can't calibrate yes. handheld breathalyzers. Now it turns out now that you can, but you have to send them in. You certainly, it would be very difficult to calibrate a handheld breathalyzer every experiment day. So we were schooled by the forensic scientists at FIU mm-hmm. and said, you need to use a benchtop model. See, I didn't sure. even know it existed. And you need to establish a calibration protocol, and you need to calibrate your benchtop model and Toxalyzer 5000 every experiment day. And if it doesn't calibrate, your measurement is off, and you can't keep the alcohol in the same room. Your
0: instruments. Sure. None of that psychologists would even have remotely known, right? Well, yeah. Now, our audience will know that police officers who want to do breathalyzer tests have to go through at least an annual refresher training and an initial certification where they they have to go through all this. They have to understand See, this and kn- be I, able to calibrate and understand yeah. what is calibrated, what isn't, and right. where the confounding factors are and that kind of thing. So that's, it's a great education for it was a
2: great education. Our,
0: our colleagues in other sciences.
2: It is certainly... Um, you know, just measuring it accurately was the, le- the last thing on my radar that that was even an issue. So we sure. learned, we were trained. My research uh, team, my research assistant, my lab was trained by um, a forensic scientist. Uh, um, Dr. Furton's lab, I remember in the beginning, just gave us, donated to us from his lab. He just gave us intoxilizers. He's like, we're not using them. You can have them. These are $1,000 machines. Sure. Uh, um and we couldn't have done it without the forensic science department. And they also just gave us calibration solution. We didn't even know what a, what, we didn't even know what a calibration solution was to be sure. <laughs> to completely out myself. Um, and that we needed, you know, 0.0, 0.05, 0.08. We've kind of condensed. That was the first study. So we really went level five with it. So How drunk did you make people? We're aiming for 0. 0.08. Mm-hmm. So the legal limit, because the risk of serious adverse events, um, increases significantly afterwards, and we don't have a nurse on staff. Mm-hmm. We do have a health center.
0: So, so we know that uh, arrestees, for example, not only have alcohol in their system, but they have uh, multiple drugs, oftentimes, in yeah. their system. There's a lot of data uh, from arrestee populations. I assume that arrestee. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I assume that there must be some similar data, or at least some at least reasonable experience with witnesses that witnesses can yeah. often be <clears throat> compromised and they can be also multiply yeah. compromised, but if you're gonna do an experiment, you have to do a fairly controlled experiment, right? Right.
2: We actually published a study where, before we even published the first lab alcohol study, we published in our one of our APA journals, Psychology, Public Policy and the Law, we published a national survey of uh, law enforcement um, who we asked a whole set of questions, but we asked them how common are intoxicated witnesses? Are we studying something that even matters to you? Uh, we think they're common, but you know, how often do you encounter intoxicated witnesses and victims? We also asked about suspects, and are they intoxicated at the time of the crime, at the time of the interview, Both. And we found that we actually underestimated the frequency of intoxication in the criminal justice system, that a significant portion of witnesses and victims that officers and detectives interact with on a daily basis is intoxicated. And they estimated that the average intoxication level is 0.11. Wow. The average. Okay. That was the mean, right? So which gets to something that I might get to later, which is that we started going into the field to be able to get higher intoxication levels because we're not really imitating real-world intoxication levels in the lab sure. because we're not allowed to. Um, but that may be one explanation why we're unable to find strong effects
1: of sure. alcohol,
2: right? Um so yeah, we staged. So that is that is just part of the protocol. What I just described, just to get that study off the ground. Mm-hmm. And then you would think that students stand in line to participate, but we have about fifty percent screen out rate. So fifty percent sure. of our participants don't even qualify, and some of them get really upset. Sure. Okay. Which is also a red flag. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Where's my so alcohol? <laughs> that, uh, mm-hmm. Don't qualify. You know, for mm-hmm. their own safety. So you can. Sure, of
0: course.
2: For their own safety. Um, And so in our first study, we also wanted to address a criticism that um, I've heard in courtrooms, in the literature, um, about our research, which is that what we study in the lab doesn't even closely or come close to what a real-world witness or victim of a crime experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't imitate the trauma, it doesn't imitate the interaction, it doesn't imitate the incidental learning, meaning that you don't even know that a crime is coming Right? Mm-hmm. not like, please sit down, you will be, you're about to be presented with a video of a mock crime. So that's what we oftentimes do for experimental control reasons, of course. You want to make sure that every witness sees exactly the same crime, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we don't really have any fundamental theoretical reasons to believe that memory for a, a non-traumatic event is significantly different from a, non tra- uh, from a traumatic event. Well, I mean, there is,
0: there is some data there, right? some, I mean, am uh, a big a, fan of Becky Campbell up at uh, University, uh, Michigan State, right? As yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, well, there is, there is uh, research on the effects of stress on memory. There's, okay. there's a meta-analysis, for example, um, by Deffenbacher and colleagues. And it, it generally suggests that this, most, most of this research has been done on memory for faces. Mm-hmm. But it does suggest that stress generally has a negative effect on memory, especially at high levels right Mm -hmm. Um, so if anything then though if I use that argument then we're probably overestimating witness memory in the lab right so because they're not stressful Mm -hmm. they're not um, highly traumatized Um, but we what we try to do is at least increase what we call the ecological validity of the event so presenting our um, our participants with an event that is unexpected and that they believe to be real so we call that a staged crime as opposed to a mock crime which is fake when you know you're witnessing it. So watching a video, you know it's a fake crime, right? But if somebody bursts into the lab while you're filling out a survey, which is what we did, and has a brief interaction with a research assistant and then snatches the laptop and runs out, we get about a 60% believability rating for that so 60%, 60% of our participants during the first study actually believe that they witnessed a real crime sure we did have a drunk hero chase the mock suspect down the hallway then we had to interrupt the um, experiment but it certainly speaks to the believability of the crime sure. and so we, but but just think about what that means to stage a crime for every participant. So you need at least six or seven research assistants for a participant. You need a medical screener. you need the bartender, you need the research assistant, you need the mock suspect. And then we also had a mock interviewer. We had somebody who pretended to be an official from FIU with a fake badge come in and said, you just witnessed a laptop theft. I wanna ask you some questions. Can I please ask you some questions? We had a clipboard to make it look official. We only had almost serious research assistants play that role. And so we had about we had about right. a 50% believability rating. Mm-hmm. But I understand why so few studies do that because the man or woman power you need to pull that off, and then just the concerted effort of you have to time exactly when the person and the box aspects when the participant sits down, and five minutes into their filler task, does the person mm-hmm. have to come in? Um, it was fun, but it was I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> so yeah, I remember there was yeah. one.
0: I, again, looking at the interrogation literature, mm-hmm. there was uh, one experiment where they conducted an entire um, like garden party with like a yeah. hundred guests, yeah. and they had and it all went as, exactly as planned. But the research subjects were actually the workers at the event, mm-hmm. and so they were the ones who who actually witnessed a uh, a crime. And were the ones who were interviewed later to determine, you know, what were the effects of uh, different aspects of observing it or not observing it, and that kind of thing. It was a really interesting kind of deal. It's I don't know how controlled
2: that experiment was. Well, I mean, that has been that general methodology has been used before, not often, but using, for example, a classroom and then somebody bursts in and then you ask sure. the, the people in the classroom. You just the problem, of course, is the more people you have, the more you have to be concerned about them not talking to each other, and they all have to be interviewed at the same time; otherwise, one person remembers one minute after the event and the person remembers an hour after the event, depending on how fast mm-hmm. you get them to be interviewed. But it certainly is uh, a great alternative to a fake event, which is what most of our studies do.
0: Could you at least notice a difference in concentration? So it was uh, 0.03, 0.05, 0.08. Do you see differences as the person gets a little more drunk? Or were you able to what tease we, out anything?
2: So without even getting to our results, what we did find is we had to implement extra security measures for our research assistants who did detox because they have to stay in the lab until they are below 0.04. We can't let them mm-hmm. out of the lab. And so the highly intoxicated, especially the males, sure. <laughs> students would had very comfy with the female research assistants. And so sometimes the female research assistants said, we need backup. There's somebody who's very drunk in the lab. And sometimes it was 7, 8 p.m., Sure. And so nothing bad happened, but it just became a little too cozy. So we noticed that was kind of a, you know, we always had a backup um, research did. resistance. But what we found in this study, in this first study, and I was very surprised, is basically that overall... Alcohol does not affect witness memory. And we looked at it from all different kinds of angles. We, you know, we looked at different types of details, and we looked at, you know, only accurate, only inaccurate details reported, because, of course, all the witness interviews were, that's our data, all the witness Mm -hmm. interviews are recorded, transcribed, scored for accuracy by independent scorers for whom you then calculate inter-rater liability as a measure of validity of your scoring system, And so um, only after we looked at, we broke down open-ended versus cued questions because, you know, at the core of investigative interviewing is trying to use best practice interviewing techniques. And so open-ended questions are generally recommended and have been Mm -hmm. shown to yield the most accurate witness accounts. So we did find in this first study that for cued questions only, so every witness was interviewed using both first open-ended questions and then mm-hmm. cued questions, that for those cued questions only, we did find a slight increase in inaccurate answers. But if you collapsed across all, like the entire interview, it was not noticeable. So this difference would not become yeah. noticeable or significant.
0: Sure. So I mentioned earlier, you know, various drugs and that kind of thing. Do we have any data on drug use and, and witness identification or anything of that nature? Of any?
2: Um, Not to my knowledge, but certainly there is no body of work that has looked at it. And I think one of the challenges, we've talked about it um, in our lab. One of my doctoral students has done a field study at a bar in Mm. Miami where he got very intoxicated (laughs) participants. And what he noticed is that many of them, when he asked them, are you under the influence of any other drugs? They're like, yeah, sure, I'm under, you know, you name it. Of course, we can't control for the accuracy of that. We didn't measure Right. That. But I think the problem with that experimentally is how do you measure input of a drug, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it is something legal in some states, like marijuana, you could probably do legally in some states now. But how do you, and that would be a question, I guess, for a forensic scientist... How do you administer that so that everybody gets the exact same amount? I guess that, that, that would be possible, but how do you measure intoxication, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I
0: mean you can you could do a urinalysis on them, and it's interesting. So the framework I always think of in these cases is mm-hmm. the arrestee drug abuse monitoring system, mm-hmm. where they you know brought arrestees in and they said, okay, if you participate, we'll mm-hmm. give you a chocolate bar, and most arrestees are just so happy that somebody's nice to them when they're being when they're under arrest that they'll accept it. And it's like clockwork. About half of them will be telling the truth, and half of them will be lying okay. about their drug use and alcohol use. And they're all backed up with your analysis. And, uh, and, and that can be a very, very effective way of at least getting a,
1: okay, a baseline.
0: So and they're interviewed. I mean, obviously so not in your way, but, but you could do a right. similar
2: structure, I bet. So this would be a perfect collaboration mm-hmm. for a memory researcher, investigative interviewing researcher, and somebody who knows or has mm-hmm. access to... <laughs> I know that-
0: You I need to go people. back to Ken Furtin and those guys. They, I know, they're I've, very good toxicologists. I've, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of settled uh, science in that area as well, in terms of how to, how to sample yeah. and how to do that. So that should be, should be a fun follow on for you. You're continuing to work in this area and do some uh, research, I assume, to- uh,
2: Absolutely, so we have ongoing, so basically our research uh, and most of the other labs who've, who've uh, across the world have done, there's only a few, a handful of labs, have basically confirmed that at least in a lab setting, where you can't get over 0.08. If anything, there's no consistent effect of alcohol on witnesses' memory for an event. There are a few studies who, under certain conditions, may find an effect on quality of information, but uh, most studies find no effect, or if they do find an effect, they find an effect on quantity, so the amount of information can be affected. Uh, But that's usually not the outcome measure an investigator's interested in, they're more interested in the accuracy. Mm-hmm. of the information. So it's mixed results at best, alcohol's effect on witnesses' memory for events. And if you look at the studies that have looked at the effects of alcohol on witnesses' memory for faces, mm-hmm. there's fewer studies. I think there's around six studies now that have looked at, at alcohol's effect on memory for faces. They find no effect. There's only one study that has found an effect on target abs and show-ups. But the overwhelming majority of the studies has found absolutely no effect of alcohol on witnesses' ability to identify a suspect, which I think is a really important finding, although mm-hmm. it's null finding, because especially in cases of sexual violence, where alcohol plays a, an important mm-hmm. role in, in witnesses and victims who are often intoxicated, we know that witnesses oftentimes are discredited for being intoxicated, and may encounter additional hurdles in the criminal justice system, or in a courtroom, or in front of jurors, and...
0: Just some terrible horror stories out there about that, yeah. And
2: Mm -hmm. I am here to tell you that Mm -hmm. there is no science at this point that suggests that alcohol uh, negatively affects witnesses' memory for a face. We actually ran the study that hopefully it's gonna (laughs) get published, it's under review, But we actually looked at higher intoxication levels because we thought, well, maybe it's just because we're not testing high intoxication levels, right? So we went to a local bar, we got higher intoxication levels. Of course, the problem is you lose experimental control, you can't randomly assign people to high alcohol and low alcohol or control. So there may be something fundamentally different about the people who are very intoxicated, right, that has nothing to do with alcohol. Mm-hmm. So you lose that level of control, but there's just no other way to get intoxication levels of 0.30, which is what mm-hmm. we had, was our highest intoxication level. And even under those conditions, there was absolutely no relationship between intoxication level and witnesses' ability to identify somebody from... a six-person lineup. There was an effect, though, at these high levels of alcohol and witnesses' memory for events, so how well sure. they remembered the crime that we presented them with. This time was a, a video because it was in a bar, mm-hmm. so we couldn't really stage an event. So, even at those high levels, so it doesn't seem to be dependent on the amount of alcohol people are given. So, sure. something about facial memory that we need to understand more deeply that, it's a little too early, I'm speculating here, but sure. maybe protected from the effect of alcohol, and so when we're speculating, you know, there's something that's really important to your survival. About you know, your ability mm-hmm. to remember faces is really important to your survival. Sure. Um, and so maybe along those lines, you know, we could develop theoretically why that is, mm-hmm. um, if in fact others confirm our findings that alcohol doesn't affect witnesses' memory for faces. Well, it's
0: a fascinating science, and I hope we'll be able to have a chance to visit with you again on it.
1: Thank you. Next week on Just Science, Dr. Michelle Peace discusses her vaping research and how users are modifying these instruments. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.